Welcome to Practical Forms of Self-Love with Jesh Durox, a mini-series focusing on 10 essential perspectives and practices to embody self-love. Here's Jesh. It was raining on Valentine's Day, you know, and being on Valentine's Day and being alone, I was uh, thinking about some of the things that people think about when they're alone on Valentine's Day. All of the uh, the various social and cultural kind of ideas and contexts that come along with that. And this last year, I really made a concerted effort to spend a lot of time with myself. I experienced some really big losses in my personal life over the last year. Very unexpected. And in the way of unexpected losses, ended up coming with new kinds of openings. And one of the biggest ones that happened for me was just spending a lot of time by myself. And I'm a kind of person who spent a lot of time by themselves. You know, I travel a lot for my work. I am often on planes. And even though you're surrounded by people, you know, you're, you're alone. I'm in hotels. I'm speaking at, at conferences or retreats and you're surrounded by people. But then you kind of go, go alone again when everybody leaves. So I'm no stranger to being alone, but this year was kind of the first year probably since I was a child. And I guess even when I, I was a child, I, I had a family, you know? So this was the first year I think I spent quite a lot of time with nobody really to go back to, with nobody waiting for me anywhere. And it was a really interesting experience to kind of get to dig in and feel what that felt like, you know, and to be able to face some of the harder feelings that came up. And I think all of this kind of started, this all started with this day in, in Paris this summer. It was near the end of July and uh, I was feeling really bad. I was in a state of deep mourning, longing and crying out for these situations to be different than, than they were, you know, but there were things I couldn't do anything about. In the midst of that kind of calling out, I reached out to play this silly online game that I play when I'm trying not to feel bad. It's kind of like my coping mechanism. It has been for many years. And I was about to play it right before you do your coping mechanism, whatever your coping mechanism is. If you pay attention, there's this little thing in the brain that's kind of like, you know, it gets really excited because it's like, I'm about to get dopamine, release the dopamine. And I was about to do that, reaching over for my computer. And all of a sudden I felt this strong impulse to listen and be quiet. And I, I heard this voice speaking to me and the voice said, Josh, if you do this, no one's ever going to know because you're here in Paris all by yourself alone in this apartment. But it's in moments like this, the destinies are either found or passed by. It was quite a thrilling thing to hear, and it was quite an unusual thing to hear. I'd never heard anything like that before, you know, and I heard it like, a, like you'd hear a thought in your head. And after somebody or something, you know, says something as intense as that, you can't really just go play your game. So I set my computer aside and I was like, all right, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? It was like, go outside. But it was raining super, super hard, like so hard, you know, it almost stings a little bit when the rain falls on your skin, pouring so hard. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to do it. I go outside within moments, within seconds. I'm like completely soaking wet to the bone. But it's summer in Paris, you know, so I'm not dying. 
and I start walking through the rain and I just immediately start feeling a different sense of aliveness come over me. It's a very powerful feeling to be completely submerged in water like that. Water is really, really special. I, I know that might seem obvious, but it's a huge part of life and it was here before us. It will probably be here after us. It provides some of the basic building blocks of life. And it's this beautiful flowing system, you know, that comes into us, goes out of us, goes up, goes down. And it's always there around us. It's been a part of like rituals of many different kinds and ceremonies of all cultures for thousands and thousands of years. And in my own kind of weird way, I had a an unexpected, you know, beautiful ceremony or ritual between me and this rain that was falling. And as it was falling on me, I just kind of felt some of that heaviness start to leave me as I got absorbed in the sense experience that I was having. And I started running. I was just on the streets of Paris. I was running. All of this water was coming to me even faster. I had a small awareness of what I must look like which was ridiculous, I'm sure. There was people huddled underneath the vestibules and under the overhang tents of the shops. They were looking at me kind of funny, I noticed, but I didn't really care that much. I was going through such heavy things. The last thing I could be bothered about was what some random stranger thought of me. I just ran. I remember exactly what it felt like to have all of that rain on my skin, the wind on my face, that beautiful feeling, and I just ran. I ran all the way to the bridge uh, near the apartment where I was staying. I had an incredible experience there on that bridge, which started one of the most powerful five weeks I've ever had, full of uh, epiphanies, full of beautiful feelings, full of realizations, and a lot of healing, you know, uh, a lot of letting go. So I won't get into everything that happened there that particular day, because that's not really the point of what I want to talk about. But I do want to share with you some of the things that, that I learned from that. It was a time of me really getting to a place where I had to decide whether or not I was going to be okay with the fact that I was completely alone, or whether that was going to be something that I spent my time being hurt or upset about, angry about, or trying to avoid by doing things like, you know, playing that game or, or, or whatever. When it comes to the subject of practical forms of self-love, I think I picked it because these things that I learned during that five-week period all really had a lot to do with practical forms of self-love. And I can say that eight months out of that experience as I am now, these have been the most powerful eight months of my entire life. They've been the most transformative eight months of my entire life. And that's not something that I say lightly because I, you know, explore transformation and, and how humans change and how humans grow for a living. And I have for many years. So it's a pretty big deal to me when I say these last eight months have been the biggest ones. And I can trace a lot of that, a lot of that straight back to what I learned during those five weeks. And it's what I want to be able to share with you guys and what I want to be able to share in this mini podcast series. I think I want to start it off all of it with saying my best definition of love, because as soon as you say love, you know, it's kind of like, what the heck are you talking about? Is it romantic? Is it Hallmark? Is it Hollywood? Is it familial love? Like what, what does it even mean when somebody says love? For me, this is the best definition I know. It's 
To love someone is to respect their free will. To love someone is to respect their free will. I think that's been a really challenging one for me when it's come to personal relationship. I feel like I'm not the only person who's had that problem because it's all fine and dandy when the people that we love are doing the things that we want them to do. But then when they don't do the things that we want them to do, hard to keep loving them in that moment. And a lot of us break off at that moment. We switch off. We talk about this thing like being in love or loving somebody as if it was a decision that you make one time and you're just in it forever. And that's not been my experience. My experience is that we have a state, we have a version of us uh, that is in love. And then when something bad happens or something scary happens or something unexpected happens, we switch out of that state of love. And in those moments, we aren't in love. So I think people who say that they're in love or, you know, people who say they love one another, they're not really meaning that they always love each other. It's usually that most of the time that they do, but then sometimes they switch out of that state. I pay a lot of attention to the states that I'm in in any given moment because they, more than anything else, are directly related to the experience that I have, not only with those other people, but with myself and with the art that I make. To respect someone's free will. That's my definition of love. I think it has a lot to do with seeing who that person is. It has a lot to do with, with recognizing that they have a right to be and explore and play and grow and make decisions in the way that seems best to them. And I think my maturing understanding of what love is, is less about finding someone and liking lots of things about them and then getting really, really clear on all the things that they need to be differently than they are, and then handing them over that list, uh, which is a technique that I've, I've tried <laughs> several times. And it's not as successful as you might imagine. Maybe you've tried that too. And at this stage, I'm more interested in my relationships with other people to just finding people, spending my time with people, investing in people, who share a lot of the same values as me and whose decisions, whose natural free will decisions happen to be ones that match up with, with mine and with, with what I'm looking for in my life. When it comes to the self though, when it comes to the self-love, practical forms of self-love, I'd like to take that definition to respect someone's free will and apply that to yourself. What does it mean to respect your own free will? What does it mean to respect your own free will? Because you could say, well, yeah, no, I respect my own free will. I make decisions, you know, all the time. And sure, sometimes I'm influenced by other people, but, or my culture or whatever, but, but most of the time I'm making decisions for myself. I think certainly we make decisions a lot and certainly we are the ones responsible for them. But in my experience and in my way of looking at it, it's kind of an interesting question to really dig into, to ask yourself, am I making free will decisions? Is this will that I have actually free? Let's go back to this example of me in Paris hurting really bad and about to play this game. Okay, you could say that's my free will that's wanting to play the game, but we've all done the coping mechanism before and whether yours is a silly game or food or Netflix and chilling with somebody or whatever your coping mechanism is. I have no judgment for any of them, as long as they don't hurt other people. Whatever your coping mechanism is, when you do it, it doesn't really feel like free will. It feels like 
something that you have to do. You need to do it. If you do it, then everything will be better. It feels more like an addiction, you know, than it really does any sort of free will. And I think that's important to pay attention to. That's one little modifier that we could we could place on that search. The other one, I think, is does it lead to freedom? Because your free will used in the most beautiful way should lead you to make choices that not only are truly free choices, but also choices that lead you to freedom. You know, and let's go back again to this coping mechanism I was about to do. I do the coping mechanism, I play the game, I feel a little bit better or whatever, but does it really make me free? Does it really do anything except for just scratch an itch, which is only going to get itchy again at another time? Does it really change anything? No, I, I, I don't think it does. And so to respect your own free will, I think is actually quite a powerful form of, of self-love that I don't think a lot of people practice. And I think to really get to the root of that and what that means for you, I think you need to take the time to learn what makes you feel free. If we were speaking face to face right now and I was working with you or we were just buds, we were close friends or whatever, I might ask you, what is it that makes you feel free? And as simple of a question as that is, what is it that makes you feel free? Most people that I would ask that question to probably wouldn't be able to give me a direct answer to that very simply or very easily. And that's quite shocking when you really think about it. This is your free will, supposedly, right? It's your free will. And you should have been a master of this at this point. I should be a master of this, having spent all of these years supposedly practicing my free will. And yet most of us, most of the time, would be challenged to tell somebody else, this makes me feel free, this makes me feel free, this makes me feel free. And then even beyond that, if 5% of the world could easily give you a list of that, or 3% or something, of that list of people that, that could, how many of them are actively doing those things, actively choosing those things in large percentages of their life? We're going to see another massive drop-off in percentages right there. So even though theoretically, we all have this potential to make choices that make us feel free, a lot of us aren't doing it. And even if we know what those things are, we're not implementing that into our daily life a, a lot. And I see that as a very clear sign that there is a deficit of, of self-love. Because if self-love means to respect your own free will, to respect it, to respect your own free will, for me, it has to be tied into to using this incredible gift that we have to make decisions about navigation, to make decisions about who we want to spend our time with, to make decisions about how we want to spend our time in ways that lead to our benefit. That has to be connected to it. And it is shocking of all animals that I know of, we're the only ones who regularly make decisions that not only don't lead to our freedom, but actually lead to us feeling worse than we did before. We will actively make choices and decisions about things that we know aren't even good for us. I think we're the only animal that does that. That's definitely not a, a form of practical self-love. So in this 10 episodes that, that I'm doing in this podcast series, I'm exploring that from, from different kind of angles and I'm exploring that from different perspectives. 
because it is a complex thing. It, it is a tricky thing. And if it was simple, then we would have figured all of this stuff out a long time ago. And we haven't. We're still working on it. I'm still working on it. And I'm a kind of weirdo guy, you know, who's devoted uh, most of my hours of my life to thinking about these kinds of things and coming up with wild potential answers to these things and experiments to see if I can make practical changes. And I've been my, my biggest guinea pig. And while I can certainly not sit here and tell you I'm any kind of a enlightened figure who you know floats around with the birds all of the time in perfect ecstasy, I can tell you that I'm a lot better at self-love than I used to be. And those small wins that I've made in that direction have, have paid off massively in quite a lot of different ways in my life. So coming back to this idea of what is it that makes you feel free? And then if a person was able to answer that, then the next part would be, do you do the thing that makes you feel free and do you do it regularly? If we go back to this idea of, you know, why I originally did this first podcast intro that I'm re-recording right now, why did I go out into the rain? It felt like a really fun and, and crazy kind of a thing to do in, in the moment. And for me, if you were to ask me, like, what is something that makes me feel free? Certainly a big part of what makes me feel free is exploring. When I'm doing something that I've never done before, when I don't know what the outcome of something is going to be, it's a big part of how I feel free. And having asked that question in various forms to thousands and thousands of people all over the world, um, one of the biggest things that I've noticed as a commonality between the things that make people feel free are people will say, well, this one time my family and I went to Switzerland, or this one time I was at the ocean, or this one time I was with my, my love, and we went hiking through the forest, is basically almost always stuff that people don't do very often. I've never, in all of the years of asking that question, heard people say, the thing that makes me feel the most free is every morning when I wake up, I go and I brush my teeth. And just putting that brush on my teeth, it just lights me up like nothing else. <laughs> I've never heard that before. And I'm not saying that's not possible, because it actually is. But it tends to be in, in moments of, of exploration. And so for me, exploration is absolutely essential and a part of what it means to, to have self-love. Because when we're talking about respecting the free will, we're talking about somebody using their free will to make choices that will lead them to free circumstances. And if you were to ask most people in the world right now, a yes or no poll, like you can do on Instagram, you know, do you feel free most of the time in your life? Most people would pick no, if they're being honest. Do we feel free sometimes? Yes, maybe. Some people almost never. But would most people most of the time feel free? No, the answer is no to that. That means that if you keep repeating the same kind of choices that you're largely making on a day-to-day -day basis, it's just going to repeat more of the same, more of the same, more of the same. So exploration is absolutely required. It's, it's absolutely necessary in the process of getting to have a better form of self-care and, and love than you do right now. And I think that's why I want to break down this word, break down this concept of, of self-love over these 10 episodes in this podcast. And I want to look at it from completely different angles, which I hope will inspire you to maybe reconsider some of those angles in places where you 
might feel stuck or might not feel free, might not feel free. One of my favorite quotes is this quote of good is the enemy of great. And I think I want great. I don't want good. But that's that's kind of this battle that we have a lot with ourselves. Uh, I, I play this game sometimes. I think I talk about it in the podcast series, actually. But I play this game where I imagine what I would want written on my tombstone. And something I certainly know that I don't want written is Josh Rocks. You know, he lived from then to then. It was fine. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want it said of me that my life was fine. I, I want great. I want magnificent. I want extraordinary. I want, I want stunning. And it's okay if that stunning isn't with a, you know, 20-piece marching band on the top of the Himalayas while I'm winning a Grammy or something like it. It's okay. It doesn't have to be stunning like that. I've had stunning moments holding somebody, breathing quiet while they're snoring, you know? I've had stunning moments like that. So I, I don't need it to be grandiose, but great, yeah, I, I do need great. I, I do need great. And my life, this one life that I get to live, that nobody else gets to live, that somehow, someone, somewhere, some system, some, some grace chose me to be in charge of this life gave me the keys, gave me the rein, gave me the steering wheel. Yeah, I want great. Yeah, I want to do something unusual with it. And is that normal? Is that the normal choices that, you know, we're taught to make? No. The normal choices, the normal cultural teachings, the normal avalanche of coming down from what our parents showed us, even though they probably did the best they could, doesn't lead to freedom. How do we know that? Because very few people on the planet can honestly say that they're free a large percentage of the time. That deserves to be changed. By God, that deserves to be changed. And the only way it's going to be changed is by exploring into these places and, and trying new things and trying new ways of looking at this stuff and kind of shaking our heads sometimes and just shaking ourselves out of the stupor that we get into and just being like, what am I doing? Why am I... Why am I playing this stupid game? I'm in Paris right now. And sure, I'm hurting. There's a lot of hurting people on the planet. You know what's happening right outside? Billions of tiny little drops of water are falling from the sky. And there's a river out there. And there's light pouring down on the river. And there's a message waiting for you out there. That's what happened to me. I heard a message outside soaking in the rain, looking at this river, looking at the light bouncing off the river, looking at millions of tiny little drops of water falling into the river and creating little circles around them, spreading out. There was a message for me waiting there. And I went out and I found it. And thank God I went out to find it. And since that experience, as if I needed more reminders, because apparently I did, it was ground into me. It was burned into me. It was tattooed into me. There are messages waiting out there for you. There are people who have learned things that will change you fundamentally. There are people who just by their presence, by the way they see you, by what they give to you, by the way that they laugh, they will open you up to great life, to magnificent life, to beautiful life. But it costs something. It costs something. And the cost of great is good. The cost of great is good. And that is a price that is too high to pay for, for most humans. It's just too scary to pay because if you've got good in your hands, 
you know, and you know good and it's the familiar and it's maybe not great, but it's fine. It's scary to let that go because if you let go of good, well, then maybe you have nothing. And if you have nothing, maybe something horrible will come. Maybe something bad will come. And that's why a lot of times humans subconsciously just make this decision to, to, to be fine. You know, it's like I was fine in that apartment. I was feeling bad, but I was about to play my game and that was going to be fine, you know, but it wasn't great. And I think a really good way as an indicator to tell in this particular moment, is this a, is this a good moment or is it a great moment? Is freeze the moment that you're in. Freeze the moment that you're in and then copy and paste it again and again and again throughout the rest of your life. And would you be okay in this kind of a moment for the rest of your life? Even just a year, would you be okay spending a whole year of your life in that kind of a moment? And if you are, it's probably a great moment. And if not, why are you doing it at all? Why do it at all? The good and fine moments come so easily. They come so subconsciously. We have more than enough good and fine moments. I think we need more great moments. I think we need more great moments. And for me, practical forms of self-love is really about that. It's about if you're in charge of yourself, if you're the one whose love is going to affect you or whose lack of love is going to affect you more than any other person on the planet, then you are well served, well served to do whatever it takes, however long it takes, however hard you have to work, whatever you have to give up, whatever you have to sacrifice to learn. How do you love yourself in such a way that by that love, by that respect of your beautiful gift of free will, you are making decisions that are changing you into a stronger person, a wiser person, a more powerful person, a more free person, a more open person. That to me, that's the fruit. That's the evidence of practical forms of self-love is that there is a transformation. Love is definitely involved in transformation. It's love that changes us. It's, it's love that allows us the space to set down the heavy armor that we have and be vulnerable in, in front of someone else or vulnerable in front of ourself to really just get to see what it is that we are and what it is that, that we have to work with and, and, and to make decisions about that. And without awareness, we're kind of lost. We're kind of lost. And, and love gives us that. Love gives us that, that opportunity. But going back to this original definition I keep repeating, to love someone is to respect their free will. I think that starts with a state of awareness. It starts with an awareness that, that they have a free will in the first place. And anybody who's ever been in an argument knows that is really challenging to remember in those heated moments. And anybody who's been with yourself in a room somewhere in Paris, like I was hurting, like I was lonely, like I was crying out, like I was, and, and going to go play that game, like I was, knows it's hard to remember. It's hard to remember in that moment that I have a choice to walk outside into the rain. It's hard to remember that there's a message waiting out there for me. It's hard to remember that when I hear that message, I will be changed from the person that I was forever after, which is what ended up happening. And so for me, this whole series is going to be about what does that remembrance really look like? What are things that I can do practically to make those activated in my life? On a day-to-day -day basis, what can I do to, to switch out good and, and to risk, take the risk of, of going more and more uh, into great? That's basically what I want to say for right now.
by the way, I should just do a small little kind of, um, I don't even know what it's called, an advisory maybe. It's not the most professionally recorded thing. They were taken right from Instagram lives that I did. It's not slick, but there are a lot of heartfelt, uh, genuine, honest uh, sharings on there. And if you have to wade through some construction that was happening near my house, and a few kind of funny situations such as Postmates people knocking on the door while I'm recording. Uh, forgive me. But I think it's kind of perfect in the way that it's messy because I know this whole journey with me and learning about self-love has not been slick. It has not been professional. It has not been in any way, you know, these three easy steps. It's been kind of messy. It's been kind of interrupted. I'm excited about it because it's the first kind of podcast series that I've done. I'm also working on another one with, with one of my best friends in the world, Rasuli. That one's going to come out later in the year, but this first little one is kind of short and sweet and uh, I'm really looking forward to sharing it. So thank you guys for your time and attention. I hope you have a magnificent day. This is Jesh signing off. Practical Forms of Self-Love with Jesh D. Rocks is produced by Jesh D. Rocks and edited by Elizabeth Windham. Our theme music is by Kai Kai. It's called Celeste from the album Fantasize. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you know someone who would appreciate this mini-series, we encourage you to share it, screenshot it, and airdrop it to your friends, family, and general community. You can find Jesh at Jesh D Rocks on Instagram and Facebook.